This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit dauntless.fm for more content. Hi, I'm Nate. I'm Gail. And this is Full Mutuality. Today's episode is a super important and timely one. Since May is Mental Health Awareness Month, it's only fitting that this episode is coming out now. But also, given the subject matter we've been covering lately, we thought it would be a good idea to have this conversation. We actually recorded this conversation back in February, so while we mentioned Hillsong a few times, we had no idea just how much of a firestorm of news the church would be caught up in just a month or so later. Our guest on this episode is Kayla Felton, licensed independent clinical social worker and co-founder of the Reclamation Collective, a nonprofit that provides support for folks navigating religious trauma and adverse religious experiences. Some of their services include workshops, support groups, and a therapist directory where you can find a provider who's informed, experienced, and specially trained to work with survivors of religious trauma, spiritual abuse, and adverse religious experiences. Speaking of the Reclamation Collective, as of May 2022, they recently opened registration for their summer 2022 support groups, including deconstruction support for all genders, spiritual abuse support for women, reclamation for women harmed in ministry, deconstruction for therapists, spiritual abuse support for Hillsong survivors, and more. So be sure to sign up soon as registration is filling up quickly. You can register online at reclamationcollective.com. And if you'd like to financially support the Reclamation Collective's work in offering support spaces to navigate deconstruction, religious trauma, and spiritual abuse, visit reclamationcollective.com slash donate. And now, here's our conversation with Kayla Felton. Kayla, welcome to the Full Mutuality Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Do you want to explain? Thank you. Thank you for for being on our show with us. Nate, do you want to explain how you got in touch with the Reclamation? Yes. So um, the Reclamation Collective uh, was actually referred to me by a friend of mine. Um, So before we even dive into our conversation, I'll give a quick little story about how I came across you all. And um, it was through a friend of mine who had had a kind of a similar experience with therapy where her first therapist didn't really understand what was going on. And I had a similar experience. I don't think my therapist had any real clue how to handle um, the religious trauma that I had experienced. Um, and so my friend recommended this this website to me. And I, I wasn't, I don't know if I was quite ready to start over with a new therapist at that point, but um, my experience was so was so triggering with my previous therapist that I I went ahead and looked and I saw that um, you all had a list of therapists who um, took my insurance. So I was like, oh, perfect. That's that's what I needed. (laughs) So that's that's how I uh, how I came across you all. And then I just kind of started uh, following your stuff, started following your social media and everything. And that's how I got in, in contact with you. So that's my story. And I'll also add on that you are still in therapy now and you found a therapist through this project that you enjoy. And I'm very grateful. Very grateful. And that makes me so happy. (laughs) I don't know. Sometimes people feel like therapy is like going to see a dentist or something like it can be stressful or like, Mm -hmm. it's a lot to get into your personal stuff. So to hear Nate, when he's comes back from therapy being like, that was really refreshing. (laughs) That was really helpful. That was really good. Like that makes me happy. 
So, Kayla, you you co-founded an organization that works with um, you know survivors of religious trauma and um, what what you refer to as adverse religious experiences, um, and so that that obviously that kind of focus on um, specific that you know trauma with that sort of specificity doesn't really come out of nowhere. Um, do you would you mind sharing with us some of your own history with religion and why you felt that this was an area that you wanted to devote your own practice to? Absolutely. So um, I was born and raised in a fundamentalist culture called the Plymouth Brethren. I was raised in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. Um, And I would say, generally speaking, when I look back on my childhood, I had a pretty, what felt like a safe childhood, what felt like a pretty like loving family and community experience. Um, It really wasn't until I started deconstructing that I think I experienced more of like the physiological response to some of the toxic narratives I was indoctrinated into is as I was like deconstructing them and realizing, whoa, how harmful it is to have believed for the first two decades of my life that I was inherently evil, you know, to believe for the first two decades of my life that there were a lot of limitations to what my role and my power as a woman could look like, feel like, sound like. Um, And so I would say that like, I came to a lot more awareness that I, I definitely identify with religious trauma as I had started my deconstruction journey. I actually moved from Chicago to the Twin Cities, Minnesota to go to Bethel University, which is a Baptist university. Um, And ironically enough, that was actually a big part of my uh, deconstruction journey was going there and recognizing that um, I was not raised in just a general mainstream Christian family or community. I started to recognize there like Christianity can look like, feel like, sound like a whole lot more than what I'd ever been exposed to. Um, And so ironically enough, I actually think that was a pretty quintessential and beautiful part of my deconstruction is being in a place where I went there thinking that I was going to be very much affirmed in the faith that I had only ever and always believed and been raised in, socialized within. And it was actually there that I recognized like Christianity can look a lot bigger and different than how I had been exposed. And then moving on from there, graduating, um, it was probably my mid twenties that I acknowledged kind of admitted to myself. It took me quite a while to admit it to myself that I really didn't identify with Christianity in general. Um, that's kind of what I refer to as a, a um, deconversion process. Mm-hmm. I acknowledge that not everyone has a deconversion process as part of their deconstruction, but I did. Um, my deconstruction journey included a deconversion in my mid twenties. Um, and I always kind of say, I think I was still attending a church for about 18 months too long. Um, but it was me attending that church and recognizing like, I actually am leaving Sunday services, super bitter, super grouchy. I honestly, for the last year, I don't think I attended it sober most of the time. And I recognized like, Hmm, that doesn't feel like this is a holy and organic spiritual activation. If I like have to like smoke weed or (laughs) literally bring like alcohol in my coffee to church, um, just to be able to feel like I can appreciate or enjoy kind of that ritual, that practice. Um, and I recognize that, you know, I think what I was really seeking to hold on to was a sense of connection to my family of origin, to my culture of origin Mm -hmm. and knowing that what it would mean for them for this to no longer be hold space for 
my life or for be an intersection of my identity. Hmm. There was a lot of fear and anxiety around like losing my family, losing my culture, losing my community. I was raised in a very like tight knit community culture. Lots of people who watched me grow up also had watched my parents grow up. Um, And so there's beauty in that. And so of course there was a lot of grief that came with um, losing my sense of connection to that. Hmm. I totally relate to that because um, one of the things that I think even within the last couple of weeks for me that I've been discovering is trying to figure out how to hold on to um, the the good memories and and the beauty in what I experienced. I mean, uh, look, let's face it, um, people's university experiences overall are generally pretty good. There's a lot of fun. You make great friends, so on and so forth. But I went to a fundamentalist university and wrapped up in all of that is a whole lot of other bullshit that is really painful to work through. And I think I, I went through the the last, um, oh God, I guess it's, um, almost 20 years now, like 15 years or so of, um, essentially labeling all of that evil and, and traumatic, which is so true. But, um, I, I, I'm trying to start to recognize that there, there was some good in there. Um, you know, and, and that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean that, all of the organizations that had harmed me weren't evil, weren't traumatic, that those experiences weren't bad. But, and I guess that's probably where some of that uh, ambivalence sort of comes from. But yeah, I totally resonated with the way that you described that, how you said there was beauty, but also it is incredibly traumatic. And that's what I would call just complicated grief, right? Mm. It's complicated. It's nuanced. It's, there's multiple truths that we're holding at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I I definitely also really resonated with that. I I feel like I didn't have any I didn't we were talking before we started recording. We, if we had recorded me you both come from brethren backgrounds. I mean, my whole adult life I spent in a brethren church serving and you know when you talked about being a woman in church, I was in leadership in a brethren church which was very wow. very exceptional. Um, they they paid they put me on paid staff, which is even more exceptional because brothers don't pay don't like paying people. No. They don't have pastors or you know. Um, yeah. So it was a big deal, um, and you know they never called me the youth pastor. That was my job. They called me the youth chair because they had to come up with another word. I couldn't be a female pastor, but there was so much conflict around doing that in that kind of an environment because it was so male led. And, you know, people felt people would, I mean, when I, when I came on board, I remember asking um, my husband at the time, who's now my ex-husband, I was like, are you asking us both to lead or me? And they were very specific that they wanted me to be the one to lead because those were where my skills were. And they had seen that I had been volunteering for so long in this, in youth ministry. And they were like, no, we want you to be. And I, I sort of looked at them like they had four eyes and it, it took me a while to process through that as a woman, I could lead. Because I hadn't really seen that modeled for me. And I remember I related with Moses being a reluctant leader. I think we were doing some Bible study on the side on that topic. And it was like resonating with me that I didn't feel adequate. And I was like, why don't I feel adequate? Because I knew like if I was in a secular environment, I went to a public school. I felt confident as a woman in leadership. But in my church, I just didn't feel like that was my place. And it was just based on the fact that I like that was the only piece of it. It was like I was female. So then when they told me, no, you're the one leading it, it was weird because then my church people would say to me, how come the bulletin says your name only? Shouldn't it say 
John and Gail, like shouldn't have both of your names there. And that was because they felt like it's not just that I felt uncomfortable, but I had to be reminded that other people around me also constantly felt uncomfortable that I was put in leadership as a woman and Mm. and the leadership weren't very good at dealing with the backlash. Like they kind of left it for me to deal by myself most of the time. So that was another fun layer of all that. But I, I mean, aside from that experience, I had been in that church my whole from 18 to 35, I'd say. Um, I think I went into youth pastoring when I was 30, but like I only had pretty good experiences and, and I hadn't even deconstructed women in leadership until after that experience. Like, and my, maybe a bit of it was my attitude was I didn't mind if I myself as a woman wasn't being treated well because it was like it's all for Jesus it's not about me I don't matter it's for his glory like this is what I was taught so it's like making yourself invisible was a way to be humble it was a way to be you know if you thought too much of yourself then you were being arrogant and you were being prideful so I like took a lot of that verbal abuse a lot of that I mean I've, I had people walk out when I spoke to that extent <laughs> like Ooh. it was strong and the, mm-hmm. the backlash to being a woman and speaking to men was strong so I think I just took all of that and went, well, it's not about me. So even if people are upset, I've been asked to lead. It's, it wasn't really my, you know, I, I was called into this and the leadership, my church made that decision and it's not about me. So if they don't treat me great, everyone, it's, it's okay. And then I only started deconstructing on in that. I related to your story because not just are we both brethren, but like you mentioned women in church and seeing all that stuff, that was a big piece of my story. And it was watching the women around me Uh, go through things in my church in different sort of scenarios. The people actually, probably the three women that were closest to me at the time all went through some really traumatic things in my church uh, in in different contexts. And it started to open my eyes, like to the fact that, you know, it's very easy for me to be like, well, it's not all about me. It's not about me. I don't want to make it about myself. I've been taught to do that as a woman, but I'm a fiercely loyal big sister kind of personality. And that's why I'm a youth pastor. And to watch the people that I cared about, you know, being crushed because they were women in different types of ways. It wasn't like it was a cookie cutter way that women got crushed in these environments. That started to push forward my deconstruction. And that was the first area for me that I started to deconstruct was how women are treated inside brethren evangelical churches. That was like the start, the start of like things starting to me to start asking more questions about what was default and what was normal and why we did that. But I think as well, when it comes to religious trauma, I think when I listen to your story, Nate, and I know your background, I know while you were in the middle of it, it was very traumatic. I think for me, it was more like you, Kayla, I think coming out and starting to undo was actually the really painful part of it because there was a lot I hadn't realized. Like it was a happy experience when I was in church, when I was in leadership, I felt happy I felt content. I felt this gave me life, purpose, meaning. I felt good about it all, pretty much. I didn't see a problem with the fact that I believed I was innately evil until after, like you said, after you come mm-hmm. out and you're like, I saw a meme today. And when you said what you said, it it right away hit me. And it said, trauma doesn't have to be an incident or a catastrophe. It can be hearing every Sunday how evil you are, how much God doesn't like you, and how you will get punished forever. <laughs> that was what, what I read today. And I was like, yeah. Yeah. And it didn't strike me at the time as something terrible that I was being taught. But those messages of, um, you know, don't trust your feelings. You know, that's the devil. Um, Your heart is wicked and evil. Uh, Who could know it? You got to turn to God. And that that 
I mean, I feel like I've always been empathetic and discerning as as pieces of who I am and to be not taught to tune into that, but rather to be suspect of myself mm. was a big harm. You know, to, to, I like it took me a long time to realize, no, implanted in me are, is intuition. I have that. I have a gut reaction to things and I need to be able to listen to that, and not tune it out. You know, mm. and I think I did not completely tune it out. I think I wasn't able to fully tune it out. But, you know, you're just not built up to really appreciate who you are. You're, you're told that you're, yeah. And that like, when you said that, it just really resonated too. If people don't assume that's trauma, (laughs) but Mm. when you're on the outside of it and you start learning that you're good, it's, Mm -hmm. it's quite something to start thinking. Imagine if I had this as a kid, imagine if I grew up with this as a foundation rather than you're sinful and wicked. And like, I'm, I'm right now I've just like gone off on a tangent because I could just feel the the thoughts rushing at me. But Gail, okay. <laughs> also, if it's okay, I can't resist myself. There is a total geeky rant I have to quick just name, which is complex PTSD is exactly mm. the experience you are describing. Mm. And that has been really, I think, liberating and um, I guess normalizing of my experience is understanding how, like, when we think of PTSD, we are usually thinking of an event, something specific happened, right? Um, And I think that, like, religious trauma often is experienced as a long-term exposure to a toxic narrative, aka a lot of the indoctrinated narratives, Mm -hmm. right, that we are Mm -hmm. given, or an abusive relationship. So it's not just a singular experience. It's a comp, it's complicated. It's complex. And so when I'm able to understand like my complex PTSD, most of which was absorbed, most of which happened in a relational context also means a lot of my triggers show up in relational contexts. Hmm. Um, But I can't hear you say that and not just name complex PTSD is exactly what we're talking about here. Yeah. 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 So what would you say is the difference between, um, complex and just regular PTSD? Is it that it's not a one-time event? Is that what different, differentiates the two from each other? Yeah. And, and I would say they don't necessarily show up completely different in symptomology. I would say that it's more just like very validating for people to have this acknowledgement that like, just because you didn't have a singular experience, or even if you don't have a, a even like a season of your life that you can go back to and say, this is when the trauma happened, mm-hmm. because it was more insidious than that. It was more Mm -hmm. sneaky. It was kind of just like a constant presence. It was my existence. It was believing that who I was was inherently wicked. That was a toxic narrative that informed my reality for two decades, almost two decades of my life. And so for me, I don't necessarily think there's a difference in terms of like how it shows up. I mean, for everybody, our, the way that we our trauma cycles, the way we experience our trauma cycles is going to be wholly inorganic to us. So it's going to look different across people. Um, but I think it's less about symptomology and more about validating that you can still have PTSD, even if it wasn't like a singular experience or event mm-hmm. that happened. Yeah, that's uh, that's really helpful. I think pro- there's probably a lot of people that maybe didn't consider that their religious trauma is complex PTSD. They maybe thought, well, PTSD is linked to you went to war, you had something happen, a car accident, mm-hmm. someone, one event, you know, something traumatic happened. But you're right. This is a, a brainwashing over your entire childhood. I mean, or, I would think where I was going when I was getting flooded just a moment ago is I was thinking about parenting kids. And I was thinking mm-hmm. about because I'm a mom of two. And I was thinking of how when my kids were little, we were taught to see rebellion in them as babies. 
um, and and see them as you know they were they've just been their nature has bent them against God, and so you know if they throw themselves on the floor and they're screaming, the default is this is rebellion. And I mean, I wasn't in the extreme circles that were like beat it out of them, but I know there is a lot in, in Christian circles that pushes in that direction. Um, I know I've changed my opinion on on you know physical discipline towards kids, and I completely 180 on that sometimes some of it too late and I think live with regrets of what would have been like to have had a healthier foundation to have raised my kids on um you know and not have taken those roots from that messaging of them being sinful like brain development is something that I didn't know anything about we weren't taught about that so instead of seeing kids as just sinful and rebellious or not in just they should we shouldn't be seeing them that way period of seeing them as this is a normal reaction for what they can process right now and this communicates something totally different than they're trying to sin or be rebellious um and i think that came out even stronger when my kids were teenagers um one of my two kids i only learned later on that you know your your child's brain isn't fully developed till they're age 25 and that the last part of the brain to develop is the prefrontal cortex. And it's the part that deals with decision making and long term goals and, you know, not doing things that's going to set you back. So teenagers tend to make a lot of really uh, not foresighted decisions, very nearsighted decisions, just impulsive and not thinking how this will affect them, this choice or this decision. And, you know, I just struggled a lot with my teenager. And I think of those messages of them being rebellious. And that was still a part of my parenting, even when she was a teenager, even though I think at that point, maybe just deconstruction had started to kick in a tiny bit. But I didn't learn about anything related to, to brain development until way later. And, and I remember someone saying to me, Oh, don't don't get discouraged until they're 25. Because <laughs> their brain won't be fully formed until then. And I look back at my decisions before that age. And I'm like, Oh, that makes that that helps me so much more to have compassion and understanding and not to get to have despair. Yeah, I just think of the the teachings that I received and how it affected how I bonded with my kids or how I responded to my kids when they were going through the rough, rough periods. And I, I look back and I wish that wasn't part of the story. I wish I was being able to reclaim, being able to reframe slash reclaim sinful nature as human nature. This is humanness. This mm-hmm. was your teenager showing up in their humanness, not them showing up in their sinful nature because it was inconvenient to you, right? Not centering yourself in whether or not your child is good or bad. They're obeying everything you say and making it all about you and then they've got to be perfect. Yeah. So that's yeah. a good segue. Uh, uh, read the word reclaim. Um, so your your organization is called the the Reclamation Collective. Um, what does your organization do? I know uh, I alluded a little bit to it earlier, but honestly, I hadn't really um gotten in into the weeds with it. Um, at full disclosure, the only thing I had done was find a therapist. And then uh, occasionally I would take a look at the website and see, and I noticed that like a lot of the support groups were completely uh, booked out. So then I just ignored the website for, for a long time and just, you know, the, the most I've interacted with it is really, you know, to, to find my therapist, which I'm extremely grateful for, but I feel like there's more. So could you uh, tell us more about uh, the Reclamation Collective? What what do you when do? When did you start it? Yeah, how how, how it was it going? started? Um, <laughs> the, the, the story, motivation, all of that fun stuff. Well, well. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of the story. Let's let's settle in. Um, okay. <laughs> so about, uh, a 
So I've been a therapist for a couple of years now here. I've been a social worker for over a decade. And I started to transition kind of, I was a middle school social worker for seven years. And I was starting to kind of make that transition into wanting to be doing more clinical work as a therapist. And um, so I had just started having like a drop-in support group. Um, Actually, I should go back first. First, a couple of my buddies and I had just hosted a a retreat for religious trauma survivors. This was before we were the Recreation Collective. It was just me and some friends recognizing this is a theme that keeps coming up. We were having some meditation nights and just recognizing like we keep on coming back to our religious trauma. We keep coming back to having to uh, reclaim our power. And um, so these themes are coming up and I just recognize like I'm connected to so many other people who have similar narratives, similar lived experiences. And so we just hosted a retreat. And um, honestly, the feedback we received from that retreat was so overwhelmingly positive. People had such cathartic experiences of just holding space in community for many of us who had been harmed in community settings. So being able to kind of reclaim what that can look like to hold space for healing, for processing in a community context um, was just so powerful that I knew I I wanted to take this in a more clinical direction. I wanted to take this as... um, as a direction, as a focus of my of my career, of my work. And so from there, I started hosting just a drop-in support group for religious trauma survivors. And uh, from there, I was able to meet my co-founder, Kendra Snyder. She's another, um, uh, she's an LMFT. She's another therapist in the Twin Cities. And she had already been kind of focusing her practice around religious trauma as well for the previous probably five plus years. And so it just felt like it was meant to be that we would be connected in the same city, um, in the, well, in the twin cities. So St. Paul and Minneapolis, I guess that's technically two different cities, but same community. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we were able to um, be able to join forces and just recognize like we're going to need a lot more organization to this to kind of create something that uh, we started with just making the directory, just recognizing like, hey, we can only maybe hold space for a few people here in the Twin Cities, uh, Minnesota. But obviously, this is not unique to Minnesota. This is not even unique to the United States. And so our first kind of vision intention was let's go ahead and try to organize therapists across the country. Let's go ahead and make a religious trauma informed clinician directory so that people who aren't able to attend a support group with the recognition collective would still have hopefully access to a clinician in their state. Here's a piece too I'll geek out about that um, the recognition collective now we really take a lot of pride in uh, being very innovative and strategic and how and why we offer the services that we offer. We only offer non-clinical interventions and supports. That is so that our licensed professionals, all of our support groups, integration circles, et cetera, are facilitated by licensed mental health professionals. However, I am not allowed to practice across state lines. I'm only allowed to practice clinically in the state or states that I'm licensed. Thus, we wanted to make sure that our uh, support groups were accessible to people across the country and ultimately across the globe. We've had people from multiple different continents join us for for our our support groups over the last two years. Um, So... From We started with a directory, and then honestly, once COVID hit is when we decided to start offering online support groups. And it was an immediate, quick affirmation, confirmation, when a lot of our support groups were getting sold out very quickly after we would open up registration, just recognizing, like, this is a need. People are wanting to hold this kind of space, 
and um, also getting really overwhelmingly positive feedback too about the kind of like transformative experiences people were having by having an opportunity to process and ultimately heal in a community context after being harmed, exploited, kind of um, controlled in a community context. And so um, we've just kind of season to season, we've just continued to offer support groups. We've expanded what we offer. Initially we were offering like deconstruction support groups. And now we also additionally offer, um, spiritual abuse support groups. Um, and we have also been able to expand that to having kind of like intersectional specific support groups. So we have a lot of queer focused deconstruction support groups. We have offered a queer focused, uh, spiritual abuse support group as well. We've offered, um, deconstruction support group for BIPOC, um, just acknowledging that like people with different intersections of identity will likely have had a very different experience with even the same evangelical or fundamentalist culture. There's still an abundance, a huge spectrum of experiences that people are having based on other additional intersections of marginalization and or privilege. Right. So um, that's been truly a gift to get to collaborate with clinicians kind of across the country to make sure that we're expanding what we're offering just to honor that not everyone's going to feel safe showing up in a support group that is facilitated with masculine energy. That's just not going to be the case. Mm. And so um, just making sure that we're, we're seeking to continue to expand so that there is a place for everyone. Mm. That is the goal. Obviously, that's the intention. There that's- will be a place for everyone to feel welcome and wanted and cozy. Safe. That's pretty awesome. Our conversation couldn't have been more timely. I mean, one thing that I've found as I've uh, left evangelical Christianity, uh, I, I've very regularly heard this term church hurt um, and even like had it used to, des- to describe like the, the frustrations that I have with Christianity. Um, I get so ticked off by hearing yeah. that phrase. It just <laughs> provokes a visceral reaction in me. Like, I'm just going to be honest, church hurt. I don't hear it without right. like some sort of... <sighs> <laughs> right you know like you're a snowflake kind of an attitude behind it yeah yeah, yeah. Minimizing, dismissive of yes, trauma. yes. right yes. right I'll, often you'll like i i've heard it most often in in like the phrases that say like oh you know the church hurt you but that doesn't mean that that's not an excuse for you to leave god um or like you know you might have been hurt by the church but jesus will never hurt you um, that one baffles me even more because i'm like <laughs> We were just told that we were the body of Christ, that we're supposed to be his arms, his feet, his, your body, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Like, we're supposed to be this interconnected, like, this is what I was taught growing up and it was that we become Jesus. He goes up to heaven, the Holy Spirit descends, and he lives in us, and we are his temple. You know, you're the temple of God. Well, all those things that kind of talked about God now indwelling in us and empowering us to be his, his vessel. And it's like Jesus incarnate. Like how he came to earth and now we're supposed to be doing that. And then so to be like, you know, it wasn't Jesus that hurt you. It was people. And it was like, you've just spent all that time trying to inform me. I am that. That's that's what we as a body are supposed to be. That's who we represent. You know, your ambassadors of Christ. Like you have these messages nailed. But then as soon as you are victimized by the church, the narrative completely shifts. And it's no longer, it's not Jesus who hurt you. And it, it just, it feels like... um feels like gaslighting. I don't even know what other term to put on that, but it it just, yeah, it feels like a complete denial of all the stuff you've been told about who the church is supposed to be in order to just avoid any sort of accountability. That's my rant on church hurt. <laughs> just, 
So the the question I I want to ask is do, do I, well I guess a. Prior to this question, do you um, interact much with uh, with people who are um, kind of still embedded in that culture, um, and and might you know might be the the people who use that sort of uh, terminology? Um, and if so, you know how how do you respond to to that kind of language leveled against people who have left the church? Um, and if not, maybe maybe we'll create a hypothetical scenario where you could respond. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. I have a very tangential, aka ADHD brain. Mm. So Me too, Nate too. You have joined the ADHD collection <laughs> tonight. We're going to see if I can keep track of all the directions I'm going to take. It's um, so, okay. We'll, we'll we all get lost together. Tonight. That's basically how this already seems like we're going to go. <laughs> all right. Well, first of all, I will say kind of to honor that I acknowledge not everyone feels. Um, like doesn't not everyone resonates with the phrase religious trauma. Mm. In fact, I think some people feel a little bit anxious about like appropriating and putting that in, you know, mm. quotes here, like appropriating a word because they're like, well, I don't know if what I, ha- what if I experienced qualifies as trauma, right? As if me claiming trauma would somehow minimize or um, invalidate another person's more significant, more, you know, again, in quotes, trauma. And so part of that is actually the inspiration for why the Religious Trauma Institute and the Reclamation Collective, um, we consulted a couple of years back to kind of create a new phrase, which is adverse religious experiences, to make sure that we were being more inclusive of all the experiences that may or may not have inspired a physiological response to the event, right? That's how we're going to differentiate trauma Often, that's going to require a physiological response, a nervous system response, fight, flight, freeze, mm. fun, right? And so not everyone, like I even said, I don't know how many times I had a physiological trauma response until I started my deconstruction journey, right? right? right. And yet a lot of those experiences were adverse to say the least, mm-hmm. right? And so we wanted to make sure that we were inviting folks who ever had an adverse, uncomfy experience in a religious or spiritual context, you're welcome and wanted here. And then to answer another part of your question there, Nate, um, additionally, I think that we do hold space for people who are still within a faith-practiced identity community. We actually, um, that's been something we've actually prioritized is from the beginning, we just recognize that a lot of, you know, Advocacy efforts around religious trauma often also included language that sounded very anti-religion. And especially as two white women who are the co-founders of this, we were like, hmm, that seems like also some major downfalls in terms of um, just being inclusive and honoring of like different cultures that have a religious or spiritual framework, Mm. right? And so we make it very clear at the beginning of every one of our support groups, we read um, kind of a grounding narrative that whether you are navigating a wave of anger and bitterness towards your faith of origin or seeking to reclaim within a faith context, community or practice, you are welcome and wanted here. We want to make it very clear that we are not here with any agenda to pull you towards or away from whatever is a holy or organic to you. Um, And so when you ask that question around, do we hold space with for people who are still showing up in these spaces? Absolutely. And I actually hope that those people also feel like their adverse experience deserves to be held, deserves to be honored. Mm-hmm. And um, 
their healing doesn't have to be measured by whether or not deconversion is a part of their deconstruction narrative. Mm. That makes so much sense. It's beautiful. Like it's beautiful that you're not trying to pull them in one direction or another. And you're, I like the term holding space. It's something that I've been only using in the last few years, but mm. as I've been trying to use different language, then I'll pray for you because that one just has a lot of baggage for me. I've been trying mm. to think of what are other terms that I can use. I, I'm holding space for you. How can I help you? How can I be a support to you? I'm trying to learn new language on how to say something instead of I'll pray for you. But holding space is a beautiful one. It's allowing someone to be and to feel however they feel without trying to guide or steer them, just allowing them to be that to present themselves as themselves. That's beautiful. At the same time, I, I um, yeah, I, I definitely resonate with the whole like thinking about it's tricky because you're, you think of like when you were in a space where you were not ready to admit it was trauma. Like you said it, you know, when you started just deconstructing, that's when a lot of it started to hit you. And some people are not in a place where, I mean, maybe it will never hit them. Maybe they'll never see it that way. And that's okay too. You're not trying to navigate them to see it that way. You're honoring their own experience. But for some people, it is a process of initially, I don't see this as trauma at all. This is my normal. This is what I've grown up with. And I was happy and good in it. And as I start to unpack different concepts and teachings, things start to pop out <laughs> that change. I mean, the older you get, you look back at the past and it could completely change everything you lived through when you just fit it, fitting one small piece into your past history can change a completely change a narrative for you. Um, and that's what it's like sometimes to deconstruct. So I think of how important that must be. Like I look at me at the different phases I was at in my journey and how I would have needed someone who was not trying to yank me to where I am now. Just like allow me to grow at the pace that I was growing and learn, you know, with where I was. And I wouldn't have used the term spiritual trauma. I wouldn't have, that wouldn't have resonated with me when I started deconstructing at all. Um, so that's really interesting. Like it's, it's, uh, it's such an important work to like, you know, not try and, and have that agenda of where, where someone should be at when it comes to how they view their whole scenario. Um, and, you know, I also think that those of us who came out of cultures and contexts where spirituality was prescriptive, it was prescribed to me. I was told exactly how my spiritual expressions were supposed to look like, feel like, sound like. Mm. I was told exactly how my communication relationship with Jesus Christ was supposed to look like, feel like, sound like. And so we're really not wanting to like recreate the cycle, right? Mm. One thing that we talk about a lot is that there's a, a possibility that if you like, deconvert without deconstructing, you might be just swinging the pendulum of fundamentalism and you might find yourself in another fundamentalist ideology narrative informing your reality. In fact, I think that can kind of happen within like an anti, you know, like if you become like so anti the culture you grew up in, but it's still like a fundamentalist narrative that this is fundamentally wrong or, and I'm now fundamentally right. I'm fundamentally enlightened right mm. there's a lot of problematic shit in that type of an ideology mm -hmm. we're just replacing one with a new one and yeah. so um that's another piece too is that i don't want the recognition collective spaces to be a space where we're just saying like that was the problem was just the the religion just the theology just the pastor just the we're, this is a culture this is a socialization and i continue to embody the supremacist narratives i received in my fundamentalist culture of origin i have to continue deconstructing those narratives that have only ever and always informed my reality 
in order to continue my deconstruction so that I'm not continuing to embody that very same fundamentalism mm. that I have deconverted from. That's yeah. really, uh, that's really super important and super beautiful to hear in the sense of, uh, Continuing that work, I often hear about deconstruction circles being toxic, <laughs> and yeah. and and they'll be like, "I left this 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 thing to be still in the same thing." And I think part of it is we all have that work. I like what you said. You know, I still have that in me. Those supremacists, whatever you've been raised in, um, continues to stay with you. And I think um, often people will feel frustrated too that they're looking for having all the right answers now you know, instead of they're still in a process of growth. So they'll be like, right. I already healed from everything. And now I'm a guru. And it's like, mm, that's a, that's, that doesn't, I don't know. I'm kind of not buying that. <laughs> I'm I do here to like, tell everyone else what to do, you know? <laughs> I do like how you put it though. Um, I, I had never had it framed that way. So I'm having a little bit of an aha moment right now, but deconversion without deconstruction just yields that same fundamentalist attitude, you're just on a different side. Exactly. And, and I think maybe what's, because deconstruction has become something of a buzzword, um, for, for myself, I, I, I like to break it down again, to deconstruct <laughs> again, um, the, the word itself, um, to really take the time to, uh, to think through what this all means. So even it, like if you think of the word deconstruct, it, it's not a destruction. It's a deconstruction. Oh, that's such a, such a, a link to a lot of people when yeah. they see it as something they need to oppose as they see it as destruction. Right. And it makes sense if but, your whole faith is what saves you, then to see here, you can't, you can't hear deconstruction right. without destruction if you're right. a part of that thought process. But ultimately it's a matter of taking a something apart and analyze it and asking questions about um, why is this necessary? Why do I need to hold on to this ideology or this belief or this facet of my identity? And and some people might come to dif different conclusions. I guess what I'm what I'm getting at is, um, you know, when we when we pull apart um, our faith and we pull apart our beliefs, I think that can produce in in some people it can produce a more robust faith because now you know why those things that you believe hold value to you personally. And I think it also produces more grace and love for others who don't hold those beliefs as well, because you recognize that this is something that I'm holding to because it's valuable to me, but it may or may not be valuable to my neighbor. And in fact, the thing that I consider valuable might be painful from my neighbor and perhaps my belief and my ideology might not be good for them. We live in an era of unprecedented access to information, news, and media. But what happens when all that information leads you to suddenly realize you spent the majority of your childhood in a cult? Well, we can tell you. Join me, Jessica Goforth, and Kathleen Reynolds as we take you into the world of cult recovery after all the emotional, psychological, financial, and sexual abuse we experienced as part of Bill Gothard's Advanced Training Institute. On our podcast called Leaving the Village, we talk candidly about our journey out and interview other survivors whose experiences boggle your mind as scandals continue to rock the twisted world of IBLP. Subscribe to Leaving the Village today so you don't miss a single episode. 
Hey everyone, I hope you're enjoying this episode. I want to take a quick break from the conversation to let you know that we have a fantastic new way for you to support the podcast. If you like what you hear from our show and want to partner with us, head over to patreon.com slash fullmutuality to donate. As a partner, you'll get exclusive content, access to occasional live recording events, and more for as little as $5 a month. Thank you already for your support of what we're creating. And now back to the conversation. I think I heard someone say about deconstruction, what's tricky about it is it's not a belief system. It's mm-hmm. a questioning together is what you have in common. So everyone falls on a very wide spectrum of, of where they land on all that. And it's it doesn't at all look the same. And then on the other side of that, there's the difficult reality that sometimes when you pull out one belief to examine it, everything starts to, it, it's a scary, it's a disorienting process because sometimes you pull out one thing and then the, a whole bunch of other things start unraveling at the same time that you weren't ready to get to and that you didn't know were attached to the last thing. Like you're you're pulling out a string and it starts to unravel everything. So I think that that's another piece of people, people are wondering like, well, what if I want to hold on to my faith and I can't if I start to question or examine things. So the process of deconstruction can be a very brave act. I, I wish people could see it as a growth. Somebody once said to me when I was discuss, describing my deconstruction, at the end of it, she was like, that sounds like spiritual maturity. And I was like, what? I've only heard it as backsliding, as uh, or she's called it spiritual growth. And it, I described like a pulling away from the whole faith construct to her. But she was able to see see the bigger picture and zoom out of my, how my religious context would have labeled me to see that I was in a process of being honest, of having integrity, of wanting to make sure that I was living in a way that wasn't full of cognitive dissonance, that I was integrated in my personhood. And she was noticing that. And that's like, that's spiritual maturity, spiritual growth. And I was like, I have never heard that labeled to my story of where I'm at mm-hmm. and where I've come to be uh, from from my background and from the people in my spiritual context of what I grew up in. It would have been looked at as, again, backsliding, falling away, losing your moral comp. I can't even think of all the terrible words that would have been attached to my journey. And it took someone outside of that upbringing to be, to see the beauty and the process that I had gone through and to label it in a way that uh, it was, it was such a reframe. It's reclamation. You're, you're reclaiming spirituality, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're reclaiming spirituality and taking inventory of what is holy and organic to you and recognizing, you know what, a lot of these prescriptive rituals, prescriptive traditions, prescriptive ways of showing up in community are not holy and organic to me, are not aligned with my my authenticity. Mm-hmm. And it actually gives you the opportunity to then explore, well, maybe there are other ways for me to relate to higher power, God, however, whoever you want to conceptualize that as. Mm-hmm. It's an opportunity. It's an invitation. It's an expansion. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I've, so I kind of... Mm, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, like, I, I found myself going back to church eventually, not because I had that idea. I actually was enjoying being out of church, and it was a very... Um, probably one of the most healing... I don't know. I Like, I feel like I I've, I've put it on my recommendation list of things that might be helpful for everyone to try out at least one time. <laughs> Get out of church for a year and see what it does to you. Um, and I, I think the pandemic has forced people didn't put that on their list as something to try out to have to do. And it, it's been eye-opening um, for a lot of people. And I'm sorry, I have a sort of question if, if our, all of our ADHD brains can pin it for the future, but like, has this really major um, practice just kind of explode? I'm wondering if right now there's a spiritual crisis going on with people having to take a break from the, from the rat race that they were on, the treadmill that they were running in with churches and having to step back and look at it. But I know getting back into church, Nate invited me to his uh, United Church. And I don't resonate with everything. Um, I sit there and I often feel like it's foreign to me. And 
I like that. I think had I just not gone back and I'm not saying this is a journey anyone needs to take because when I hear people left church permanently, unlike people who looked at me during that phase and were like, you need to get back in church. My thought is you do what's healthy for you. And I see so much health in being out of church. So when I say I'm back in it, it's not with that thought in mind that anyone needs to be back in church. But for me, what was interesting about that is it helped me not to look down at everyone who was still in any sort of Christianity as a, like to listen to different ideas that were outside of evangelicalism for me was new to hear religion reframed, to hear spiritual concepts that I had been taught a certain way come look so different that it still, still does not feel familiar to me. And even though it still doesn't fully resonate with me, and even though sometimes I sit there and I'm a little lost, I see a beauty to it being different than what I knew. I see a beauty to to spirituality being practiced outside of what my norms were. It's been so healing to see all the reframes on everything. But I still don't, I haven't, you know, I don't ever try and push that. You need to get back in a church. Because I had people who said that to me and it was just... It's prescriptive. It's yes. just someone's hot take on what I should do for my spiritual activation, for my relationship with higher power. Like, yeah, I'm just not here for anyone else's hot take on my life. Yeah. And I remember being yeah. raised that way and being told, like, do not stop gathering together somewhere in the habit of doing. It's that prescriptiveness mm-hmm. that ends up informing that sort of way of looking at it where they think they're being helpful. But it just it was, uh, it was very suffocating when it didn't come from myself mm-hmm. and when it felt like I had to go in order mm. to make people feel that I was okay. <laughs> so I, I want to maybe turn the conversation a little bit into um, spiritual abuse and what I, I think because of, of what we're seeing happening now, I mean, um, the uh, the last evangelical church that I was um, heavily involved in was this church called Hillsong, which, I mean, if, if you know anything about the evangelical world, you you are aware of Hillsong through its its music empire, um, the various bands. Uh, you know it's it's constantly at the top of the Grammys, but also in the past couple of years, it's massive scandals at the the highest levels of its leadership. But what that's also brought about, um, I think, with with some of the major evangelical organizations, I think we saw what within the last within the past ten years. Um, we saw, uh, Mars Hill church. We saw, you know, the abuse coming from Mark Driscoll, which is happening again at his current church. Um, which I, I, I can't stretch, I can't stress enough. He is still perpetuating the same kind of abuses that he, that he did at Mars Hill. And he's doing that at his current church now. But now, like if Mars Hill had, had a tiny amount of accountability necessary, um, to keep him, to, to hold him to account, um, his current church has zero for him. He is completely in control of how how everything runs there. Anyway, so we've got Mark Driscoll. We've got the Ravi Zacharias scandal. Um, we've got Jerry Falwell. We've got Franklin Graham. We've got Hillsong, the numerous pastors at Hillsong, not to mention their senior pastor. It's just one after another after another. Why do you think... 
abuse. Bill Hybels. I mean, you oh, yeah, could literally Bill Hybels. Just, yeah, just and these were this was like in a, in a, in a so-called egalitarian sort of more trying to trying to branch out from sort mm-hmm. of that treating women badly kind of male dominated environment. Yeah, and, and and even I mean, speaking of uh, speaking of of quote unquote egalitarian spaces, you know, one step from mainstream evangelicalism into a quote unquote progressive environment is uh, a church like or pastors like Bruxy Cavey. But we're we're seeing the same thing happening with him. Do you do you have any thoughts as to why abuse seems to be so endemic in church settings? Well, the short answer is uh, because men, Nate, because <laughs> men. That's my short answer. <laughs> it works. Um, <laughs> it works. Um, I also, I, Gail, I think you alluded to this earlier that I do think we are seeing a lot of an unveiling of mm-hmm. what's really going on. I don't think this is like people throwing people under the bus. I think they've been under the bus this whole fucking time. And we're just finally putting flashlights over there and be like, this is where they are. This is where they've been this whole time. Hmm. Um, and I think now as people through like me too movements, there's an abundance of me too and church Too movements, right? Mm-hmm. People are being empowered to say, okay, that I'm not the only person this has happened to. And mm-hmm. this is happening to enough people across the country, across the globe that I might actually be believed now. Hmm. And so I do think we are seeing a lot more survivors be in the position to step forward and to name. This is what's happening. This is happening behind the scenes. Um, I also think, you know, I, I'm remembering now, Gail, what you had alluded to is like through the pandemic, um, definitely people are having like a an they're, opportunity. They're unplugged from the matrix for a little bit. And it's, it's, <laughs> yes. it's uh, disorienting all of a sudden that they're not just running on that treadmill and serving in like I in. I mean, I think of Hillsong just because that's where you were at, Nate, and what you had mentioned. But like churches where they demand so much service and of your time and you just mm-hmm. get caught so caught up in you, every single day you're at church and you don't have time to reflect on what are the teachings you're processing, what are what is being pumped into you. And I know for mm-hmm. myself that why I talk about being out of church being such a healthy thing, even though I'm currently not, um, is that there's things that could not hit me if I didn't have the quiet away from all of it in order to be able. And Mm. it didn't come like the first week I didn't go to church. (laughs) It took months and months, probably over a year before it started to really show up. The questions and the thoughts started to show up. And, you know, I was trained to see that as well. That's why the Bible says not to start meeting together, because once you Mm. do, the devil's going to get a hold of your brain. And in reality, it's giving you the time to think and to process and to take enough distance to examine things. (laughs) And I think it's, it's become an organic opportunity to break some codependent community cycles. So this is something I talk about a lot is um, we think about codependence often in terms of a partnership, two people, right? What do we, we should talk about it in terms of community too. I was in a codependent community where I didn't know where I started, uh, where I ended my community began. My identity, where I was told the only important thing, the most important thing, but also the only thing about me was my proximity to this community, my proximity to this God, my proximity to this uh, ritual, this tradition, this theology, right? And so I was in a very codependent relationship with my church community. And so I think that like not having maybe not being holding physical space with community might be organically naturally breaking some codependent cycles of recognizing actually you're still you even though you're not attending this church every Sunday. You're still you even though you're not volunteering lots and lots of your hours into ministry here. 
And who are um, you? So Maybe those questions even pop up. Who are yeah. you outside of all of those serving in that church thing? Like what, what mm. else is you? <laughs> what? Yeah. Right. what else is you? And also I will say like, uh, I know we have three different countries across North America represented right now. Right now I'm in Canada. Over. For those who don't know, Nate is in New Jersey and, and you're in the U.S. and you're in Mexico. I'm currently in Mexico. Which city are you in? That's another story. Wow. I'm currently in Cancun. You're in Cancun? Ooh. Ooh I'm okay. in Cancun, yeah. We're representing um, North America very strong. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not off. representing Mexico, obviously. <laughs> no, no, I, no. I mean, we're, we're yeah. covering I mean, we're covering the continent tonight. <laughs> um, as I take a sip of my wine, recognizing I forgot where I was going. <laughs> Tell I, me where we were. Uh, that's was okay. It, I'm, as I sip my bourbon, I don't remember where any of this was going. <laughs> this is team. what it's like to turn team. into mm-hmm. tune into our godless podcast. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, I think we're talking about that claim, knowing who you are um, when you're yes. not a part of those spaces, and understanding who who are you if you you know you're defining yourself by all the things you do for church and how they recognize you and what they say that makes you important or have significance and then you unplug that and it's like yeah you still exist you know and i'm just remembering to what nate had said about just bringing bringing in a segue to spiritual abuse and i want to just name that i don't think this is necessarily unique or only exclusively happening in christian spaces um Mm -hmm. one big part of my focus and my practice around spiritual abuse is acknowledging that this is not necessarily unique to religion period I'm working with mm-hmm. spiritual abuse survivors who have been harmed in, in a, a number of different communities, both religious and entirely non-religious communities. I initially was asked and invited to hold space for folks who are being abused in plant medicine and um, yoga, yogi, kind of guru kind of relationships context. Mm-hmm. And so um, that for me was really supportive and helpful in recognizing like spiritual abuse can happen in really just about any relationship where there is trust, but certainly especially vulnerable in relationships where there is a power dynamic, particularly a hierarchy, mm-hmm. a teacher, a guru, a pastor, a clergy, you know, um, just recognizing like how very vulnerable we are. So I think this is an unveiling that's happening certainly in Christian context and church context. I also will say I, I, I'm watching it happen in a number of other contexts as well that I'm a part of. Um, and, uh, there's a lot of obviously tragedy and grief that comes with that. But for me, I have to be real. There's a great deal of hope in that as well. Being like, great. Some of these systems have to just burn so we can create altogether new possibilities. Mm. Um, recognize that like, also that's another piece too, that I talk about a lot with, um, religious trauma survivors is that sometimes there's this, I think it's a false hope, a false reality that once we've deconstructed or left or deconverted, I should say, deconverted from a community that I'm safe now. Well, I actually think that for many of us navigating that deconstruction journey, we may actually still be very vulnerable to finding ourselves in an altogether new and different codependent community. Mm-hmm. Another altogether different codependent, hierarchical, abusive relationship, power mm-hmm. dynamic. So somebody's listening to you and goes like, ooh, mm-hmm. how do I know if I've gotten out of a spiritual bad Christian community and I'm not in another code? Like what do, what defines codependency? What are those mm-hmm. things to look for that would kind of give you that clue that you left one thing? And Like what does codependency look like? Change environments, but you still have it. Yeah, well, I think codependency looks like not really knowing where you 
begin and end and another person being community begins and ends where you're really seeing like your identity is connected to an other external being, whether that's an individual person or a community. Um, but basically like, I'm not able to see myself as like an independent, inherently sacred being as I am. I, I don't know that I know totally how to answer that question. Um, but no, you, that is helpful. Yeah. Just the, not knowing where you begin and they end. And, and so you could come out of a, a, a you know, a, let's say an evangelical environment and then land in another community where you're still sort of repeating those, um, defining yourself by your group, mm-hmm. uh, by your leaders in there and how they see you and your devotion to it or, you know, within that context only and not, not being well, able to function independently. I think I can relate that a little bit to my own uh, experience because my deconstruction journey actually started uh, much earlier. I mean, for, so, you, you know, for those of uh, those of you who have been listening for a while and kind of get, already have a sense of, of my story, this is a little redundant. But um, if you don't, uh, I, I came out of 20 years of being in uh, the fundamentalist Baptist movement and then from there, I ended up heading into uh, the sort of megachurch environment. Um, and one of those um, megachurches was uh, a Mark Driscoll-aligned Act 29 megachurch. And then from there, I ended up um, at Hillsong for a few years. And particularly in those phases between uh, fundamentalism and entering the megachurch world and then um, transitioning from the Acts 29 megachurch world into the Hillsong world, there were points that I had, I, I suppose, deconverted, quote unquote, from the previous version of Christianity that I had been a part of. And there, there are certain toxicities that I was peeling away or that I was, you know, clearing out of my system, but introducing further toxicity. So, you know, for example, leaving Emergence, which was that Acts 29 uh, church that I was a part of, in the midst of all of that, I was deconstructing Calvinist theology, the the wrath of God, the, you know, um, uh, total depravity, all of that. Like you, you, you could you couldn't possibly be any more wicked than you were. And the only reason that you are of any use is because God chose you. So I. I I deconstructed that mentality and started um, opening up to this idea that no, God saved you because he loves you. And, you know, love is at the heart of what God is doing. Um, not to mention, you know, hell is always still somewhere in, in the background of, of evangelical teaching, whether they bring it right to the foreground or whether they hide it in their back pocket. So I, I moved into this environment of, you know, Hillsong loves to promote this idea of, you know, uh, God's love, overwhelming love. They are, you know, Arminian by theology. Uh, so they, they lean into that very heavily. So for me, I saw that as a new safe environment. Um, it was safe from the toxicity of the, the wrath of God theology, but the culture at Hillsong was incredibly toxic. And I think so, so that's just my example. It's within Christianity and it's, and it's within evangelical Christianity. It's not even, you know, stepping away from that particular branch of Christianity. But I think that that serves as a little bit of an example of how, you know, we, we can think of ourselves as being quote unquote safe, but we haven't actually done the hard work of, of recognizing what safety looks like. Absolutely. And I think too, I mean, it's, it's not, 
spiritual abuse is not limited to codependency, right? Like there's also like spiritual abuse that just looks like showing up in another place where you're being, again, handed prescriptive ways of how you should be taking care of your body, how you should be, where you should be putting your money, right? I always kind of ask, have you ever met a fundamentalist vegan? Have you ever met a fundamentalist atheist? Probably, right? Where it's like, we can still find ourselves in other communities, other intersections of like, this is the best way to do things. And so if I'm finding myself in like a yoga community that's like, we have the best way to do yoga. We have found the best way to commune with body. Um, and certainly in psychedelic spaces, I shared with you guys before we started recording, I'm a psychedelic therapist and I have, um, as I also shared, I've held space for survivors who have been harmed in psychedelic and plant medicine spaces. And so also like, I'm very, very protective that we do not invite fundamentalism into our relationship with medicine either. There's not a singular way to be in relationship with plant medicine, with psychedelics, with, you know, consciousness. And so also being able to recognize when we're in a new community where someone's trying to prescribe us the best way, the supreme way, right? That's a supremacist narrative if they think of supreme. The supreme way to be in relationship with self, other people, money, food, movement, you know. Um, there's an abundance of ways that fundamentalism, a.k.a. supremacy, can show up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How would you, um, and maybe we, I've asked this in a different way, I'm not sure, um, but if you were to define and help someone understand what how religious trauma looks different um, from just trauma in general, like what is the what is the religious component add in in terms of healing, in terms of what it, how how it affects you? What would you say to somebody who doesn't understand um, how that looks different, religious trauma from just trauma? You know. I actually would probably make the argument that it doesn't look that different. I think trauma is trauma is trauma. And um, this is actually part of why we, we take a interesting approach at the Reclamation Collective to, we, we don't really hold to this ideology of religious trauma syndrome because I don't necessarily believe that we need to pathologize or even treat trauma particularly different just because of the context it happened in. We don't have like sexual trauma syndrome. We just validate trauma that takes place in a sexual context is traumatic. That's not great. And that doesn't mean that sex is bad or sex is the problem, right? Mm. But trauma that takes place in any context is still trauma. It's about the physiological response to what's happened to you. Mm. And so I actually, um, as a therapist, I would just... um, honestly encourage like find some somatic interventions finding ways to get into your body finding ways to extract what's been stored what's been trapped in your body from that physiological response to what's happened to you um i don't know that we necessarily again have to differentiate symptomology i'm not sure that symptoms look all that different from cptsd to ptsd to religious trauma to sexual trauma to medical trauma etc it's how did your nervous system show up and uh, what cycles are your nervous system now kind of stuck in? Would you say it's more helpful in defining it? Not so much to uh, pathologize, let's say, you know, to act like sexual trauma is not trauma or religious trauma is the problem. The religion is the the part of the the trauma problem. But would you say that maybe the categories are more um, for relatability for someone to understand the specific ins and outs of like, if someone has gone through sexual trauma and they want a trauma therapist that specializes with victims of sexual violence, that the, the religious element of religious trauma is more to help 
like I know when Nate went to a therapist who'd had no experience, <laughs> religion was only positive, right? So then it was hard for them to sort of relate. And um, they said a lot of stuff that probably was more harmful than good in trying to be helpful. And I think religious trauma has been dismissed and invalidated in many contexts, right? It's like, well, oh, you just disagree with your parents. Uh, you're just mad at your dad. Okay, maybe that's true. But also like, that's not just what we're talking about. And so I do agree that there's, there's the potential for more community to be built when we have language in common, when we have shared language. And so being able to say, I do identify, I resonate deeply with religious trauma, which I do. It also cues on other people in the space that you know, I do too. This sounds like this could be a good connection. Hmm. And I also will say like, I also know that people will probably want to go to a sexual trauma specialist, a religious trauma specialist, if that's the trauma they're navigating. The context is important. I would not say the context is irrelevant. That's what we're going to be processing in any type of trauma resolution work. We're going to be right. processing the context that it happened in. So the context is important. I, I hope I didn't imply that I don't think the context is important. No, I think I was just trying to clarify that and come around to, yeah. to how it plays in. Yeah, The context is important. And of course, there are still spaces and individuals and therapists who will invalidate that mm -hmm. context in part because they probably feel threatened by the existence that someone might have been harmed in a context, in a community where perhaps they have felt spiritually activated, inspired. Yeah. Mm. Or supreme. <laughs> yeah. That too. In those ways. All of those things. Yes. Um, I had a, like another slash question thought that was sort of popping in my head. I mean, earlier, maybe I'm just commenting on something you said. You feel free to do that on anything I say, too. I love I love those kind of conversations where I'll just jump in. But um, when you were talking about how, yes, the pandemic, there's been a lot, lot more people like it's come, things are coming to a head, you know, not just in spiritual context, but sort of across the board in all kinds of contexts. I'm wondering how much because I'm thinking of my own life. When I was in my 20s, the internet was brand spanking new and there were no survivor communities um, for any kind of trauma. And now I look mm -hmm. at it and the social media world has created lots of space for victims in different areas to come forward. And I know that builds an ability for people to be able to speak up when they see others doing it. Like that tends to help people to speak more. I'm wondering how much that has just absolutely changed the dynamics of religious communities. Like even the negativity towards deconstruction comes from a feeling of being threatened where previously if a pastor you disappeared from the church you probably knew that you weren't going to have too many people you wouldn't know who to find to connect to in order to validate your experience they could sort of paint a narrative you'd kind of disappear um whereas now people have platforms people have other people in another you know nate and i live in different countries and when we go through our past history there's a lot of connection that we have in terms of religious trauma um and understanding each other's stories um so i'm wondering how much this whole social media world. I mean, it's no, it's not your specialization, but I'm just wondering how much uh, <laughs> we need to feel supported and how much uh, things are shaping up and changing in the world around us because things can come more public and open and people uh, are not filtered the same way from the leaders who are in power, uh, being able to control who gets to say and share their story and how that gets told. Um, people can share their own stories. Like, you know, we, we got a lot, we've had pushback from pastors, um, not directly. They've sent, you know, their their sister in law or whoever to go on social media <laughs> to, instead to say something for them. About right, <laughs> but that's usually how that goes down. You know, they keep they got to keep their nose clean. It's usually the flying monkeys. But like when people uh, speak up and tell their stories, it's threatening to people who are in power who have in the past not had 
their narrative challenged on how they go about stuff, who surrounded yeah. themselves with similar and the abusive context went unchecked, you know, in, in abusive environments, things went unchecked. I'm wondering how much do you notice that? Do you see that? How, do you encounter clients who it's through interacting online that they got a, a sense that this was actually a big thing where maybe they wouldn't have noticed that just in sitting in their community? Absolutely. I think just like deconstruction spaces on Instagram and certainly on TikTok for sure. Like I mean, mm. these are spaces where people are being able to be introduced again to this language that we can hold in common to recognize, oh, okay, I have more language now to even like recognize my own trauma narrative, let alone share it. And now we have more platforms that are inviting people to share their narratives. By no means are we seeking to like share people's narratives, but we are looking to a hold space for people to process their own narratives in our support groups and in our retreats and in our uh, different like workshop spaces. Um, but one thing I'll just say uh, around social media that I hold a lot of hope for this ongoing exploration of what is possible for accountability. Mm-hmm. I think that us being able to connect with people and be able to expose But most important, disclose, share our own narratives. It belongs to us. I don't have to worry about how someone else is represent. I'm not here to represent my abuser. I'm here to represent myself and share my narrative. And now that I have the capacity to do that, thanks to social media, thanks to even just like online networks of people across the globe, I do believe that we are, I feel some hope that we may be able to create an altogether new system of accountability. I also am from Minneapolis, so I'm just going to go ahead and mention abolition is the only way. Abolition is the only way. I truly believe that. And so I also am excited and energized by what is possible for creating altogether new systems of accountability. What could this look like, feel like, sound like? Um, And I believe that anything about us without us is not for us. So this will be done by and for survivors. Mm. Survivors are going to have to be running this shit for it to work. Hmm. I mic drop. (laughs) So I want to transition a little bit. Uh, I think I'm going to rapid fire here. So uh, not too long ago, I actually um, uh, posted to social media some some questions surrounding uh, a question surrounding religious trauma. And I got I got a few responses. um, And I thought I'd run them by you. And in terms of these were questions that were that were posed to me. And so so there was one question that was asked, um, what causes people to abuse and what does a healthy environment look like that would hinder abuse in a church? Well, one thing I want to just point out was spiritual abuse. Part of like the definition that the Reclamation Collective holds starts with spiritual abuse is the conscious or unconscious use of power to direct, control, or manipulate. And so I think that's a really important piece is that sometimes spiritual abuse is not conscious. So often it's happening, and perhaps on behalf of all parties, not recognizing we are not in an okay power dynamic. We are in a totally disparate power hierarchy here. And if we're not even recognizing that we are in misaligned relationships, really um, vulnerable dangerous power dynamics with people. We're not going to be able to recognize when we are being abused and we may not even recognize when we're abusing. Mm. I think that's a really important nuance that I am navigating a lot with spiritual abuse survivors is just because someone didn't mean to hurt you doesn't change the outcome that happened to you. Mm. Um, And so I think that this is a tricky piece where like, why does abuse happen? I, I don't think it's so simple, right? I think there's an abundance of reasons why People end up 
wanting something out of another person, mm. right? And they yeah. might even be conscious that they are seeking to exploit someone for their energy, for their body, for their money, for their relationship, for their power. Mm. And so this is where it's just super sneaky, where yeah. it may not even be conscious on behalf of any party within the mm. dynamic, the person abusing or the person being abused. Yeah. But That's then really impact is greater than intent. Absolutely. So the next question that that I thought I thought this question was pretty good. Um, so if I'm currently in therapy, how will I know if my therapist actually understands the various forms of religious trauma? You know, as a therapist, my perspective on this is like I have not lived the life of any of my clients. So I don't know how important it is that I understand what they've experienced so much as I can validate that they've experienced what they've experienced. I will say this is a realm where I also, similar to your narrative, Nate, of having a really negative experience with a therapist who is quite dismissive and it sounds like invalidating of your lived experience of navigating religious trauma, there are other therapists. I've heard a number of unfortunate narratives of people mm having that experience in therapy. So I would just say the important piece is to ask your therapist, do you validate that religious trauma is real? And, mm -hmm. um, and also knowing that like you get to hire and fire your therapist, you're not making a commitment to any right. type of a relationship. You are investing in a therapeutic container. And my approach to my work is that we are co-creating a therapeutic container. Is there mm -hmm. power dynamics in there? Yes, there are. There are power dynamics in that therapeutic relationship, and let's talk about them. But we're co-creating a container, and of course, my work is a little bit unique in that we're doing psychedelic interventions, and so I'm like, I want you to have a big part in curating the way that you want to be held mm. for your transcendence, for your healing journey. Um, this is not me as guide. This is not me as teacher. This is not me as pastor. And so I have to do a lot of work with a lot of my clients who are coming out of religious fundamentalist cultures and experiences to name like, I'm not here to tell you how to heal or to tell you how to, I'm not here to prescribe you either kind of interventions. Right. I'm here to co-create a container that you hopefully feel safe to show up authentically, safe to just process and explore what is possible. Um, and also to be very honest with yourself, are, are, is this helping? Is what you're doing helping? Is what you're doing conducive with your liberation? Is what you're doing conducive with your access to autonomy? Hmm. But yeah. so that would be a piece too. And that might be personal to me. I really would not jive well with a therapist who had a particularly like prescriptive, directive approach to therapy. To hmm. me, I'm like, that's not what therapy is about. Um, therapy is about holding space for someone else's holy and organic exploration, expansion of self. Mm. That's a celebration that's a, of self. That's a really yeah. good, interesting point. That might be a big piece for a lot of people who come out of um, religious trauma. They would be used to uh, hierarchy. They'd be used to being told what to do, and they may look to a therapist mm. to to give them guidance because now they're missing, maybe mm. even missing someone that they're used to telling them how to live their life, and now maybe they want to transfer that over to a therapist. Mm. Might be a good. Uh, from what you're saying, it's it sounds like a good thing for people to reflect on seeing their therapist as somebody there to help them learn about themselves and not to tell them how to go about yeah. their own path, to help them figure out that it will come from within, that they will hold space for them to be, to show up as they are without looking to impress, without looking to get the approval of, without looking to that other person to, to, um, to guide, but more to help them figure out 
what they need for them to be able to look at themselves and self-reflect. Tuning into inner healing wisdom, body-based wisdom, intuitive knowing, you know, like this is, and how scary that is for people coming from cultures, coming from contexts where we were told you can't trust yourself. You can't look to yourself for answers. What's going to come, what's going to come from inside you is going to be bad. (laughs) That's what you're told. Yeah. So this next question um, is, um, so I guess the, the preface question is, do you see any pattern in the religious organizations among your patients? In other words, um, what are some of the most common religious organizations that are connected to their trauma? So <laughs> this, this feels like a call out question. If we, if we it need might to edit be this too, one out. Where, where you, where you're located might have something to do mm, with true. which churches in your neighborhood are having a big impact maybe, or what, uh, what networks. Yeah. Well, I'll be real. My first year, I did notice, I mean, I had a big learning curve and learning about Assemblies of God, AG communities. I would say easily like a third of the folks I held space with in both clinical and like support group context were coming out of AG Assemblies of God cultures. Uh, There's a lot of AG uh, institutions, uh, educational institutions, churches in um, Minnesota. And so that may be geographical. I did not, as I mentioned, I did not grow up in Minnesota. So for me, that was a big learning curve, but that continues to be heavily represented on my caseload. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd be curious to, to about that here as well, because I live within an hour of Nyack College. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if maybe that uh, the AG representation might might also be, um, uh, be here as well. Um. I think, uh, and then I guess the the last question of this set is, what can a religious community do to minimize its risk of traumatizing its members? Yeah. Well, you know, I actually had a beautiful opportunity last spring to hold space for a a processing group. It was less of a support group. It was more of a processing group for spiritual leaders, uh, spiritual and faith leaders, um, acknowledging not all spiritual leaders are coming from faith context. But um, that honestly was learning for me too. Um, showing up in these conversations with spiritual leaders across the country to have conversations about taking inventory of the power dynamics, taking inventory of do people have access to autonomy? And I think that's a nuanced question, right? Of like, do people have access to their autonomy? Do the people who are who their income is tied to their proximity to your congregation, do they have access mm. to their autonomy? Mm. Hmm. Are people who have like housing associated with their proximity to your community, do they have access to their autonomy? Do the children, the minors, the people who um, all of their basic needs are tied up in their proximity to their parents and their parents, maybe their proximity to this community. Um, So just acknowledging like not everyone has access to their autonomy and you may not be conscious of it. And that doesn't relieve you of responsibility Mm. of controlling people. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Kayla, I want to say thank you so much for spending this time here with us and, and for the gift of your time. Yes. Um, I do have a couple quick wrap up style questions. The first one being if people are looking for you, where can they find you on online social media? Um, what, what's the, what's the scoop there? Well, uh, you can find the Reclamation Collective. We have a website, reclamationcollective.com. That's where you can be able to register for any support groups, retreats, workshops that we have coming up. Um, Also, where you can find our religious trauma-informed directory of clinicians across the country. We also additionally have at least least two, I believe, clinicians in Canada, maybe more. 
Um, So obviously, hopefully, we'll be able to expand beyond the United States of America. That's just where we're starting. And then uh, you can also find the Recognition Collective on Instagram, on Facebook, um, to kind of stay up to date, kind of informed on when we're going to be launching new projects and new offerings. Additionally, the institute where I do my psychedelic work is the Institute for Integrative Therapies. We are located in St. Paul, Minnesota. Our website is iit-mn.com. Um, and that is where you would be able to access ketamine-assisted psychotherapy right now. That's the only uh, psychedelic medicine we're able to access at this time. However, I also just got my MDMA certification through MAPS. So hopefully when and if that medicine becomes um, federally accessible, we'd be able to um, also provide MDMA interventions for trauma survivors. So that would be an option. We also are able to work with people across the country. However, you would have to travel to us in order to be able to get, obviously, the the psychedelic intervention portion of your clinical intervention. Um, And yeah, I think those are the two points. Awesome. So I'll, I'll put all of that info into the show notes. So um, if you're listening and you didn't quite catch the the website or web address, uh, no need to rewind. We'll just you know click the links in the show notes. Um, and then finally, what are what are some resources that you would recommend to people? You know, this could include some of the resources that, that the Reclamation Collective offers, but also um, you know feel free to mention any books or authors, maybe some other podcasts or anything that you've gleaned some some info and help from. Well, I will say in the religious trauma realm, um, a book that really was helpful for me in my healing and deconstruction work was Pure by Linda K. Klein. I met her. You did? I I did. Actually, I've had a Zoom meeting with her. I haven't met her in real life, though. I sat sat and had lunch with her uh, with a few others as well. But she I didn't even realize she was the speaker at the conference I was at. And I didn't know who she was. Like, I had no (laughs) idea who was sitting beside me. And she was just taking notes in her notepad, like and having conversation and jotting down stuff. So she just seemed strange to me. And then when she got up on stage and she started explaining her book, then I was like, oh, it's an author. And she's constantly just taking notes for like, you know, her research and stuff. And I was like, okay, then I can connect. I'm like, that's a she had fabulous heels that day and she dropped her phone and I ended up having to bring her back her phone. (laughs) That's what I remember. (laughs) Her book, Pure. Sorry, I totally detracted from Linda K. Klein's book, Dealing with Purity Culture, right? No worry. Well, there's that book I recommend, but also um, the Religious Trauma Institute is definitely kind of a a sister organization, advocacy organization for religious trauma survivors. Um, And then Laura Anderson, who's one of the co-founders of the Religious Trauma Institute, also just founded the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery, which is an incredible resource, actually. I'm glad... I just remembered that. Um, So CTRR, they actually are taking a very similar approach to the Reclamation Collective to try to gain access or try to help individual survivors gain access to mental health support. So this is essentially um, a coaching organization. So you can get online telehealth coaching through CTRR. However, all of their coaches are licensed mental health professionals, aka therapists. So again, that's taking the innovative strategic route of seeking to help people across the country, across state and country lines, be able to access mental health support with a licensed professional. But it is marketed obviously as coaching versus therapy. But that's honestly to be able to help people gain access to religious trauma-informed practitioners. Um, So I highly recommend 
um, looking to CTRR, if you're not able to find a religious trauma-informed therapist in your state or in your country, um, CTRR would be an incredible resource for you. Great. Thank you again, Kayla. This has been an incredibly enlightening conversation. Uh, Once again, thank you for the gift of your time and for the gift of sharing your your wisdom and your experience um, and everything that you've gleaned over the years uh, and even some of your own vulnerable spaces in your story. So we really do appreciate that. Absolutely. Thanks for having me here. That wraps up another episode of the Full Mutuality Podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. And if you don't already have one, head over to our website, fullmutuality.com, for a list of all the apps you can find us on. We couldn't do this without you, our listeners, so thank you so much for your continued support. Speaking of support, one of the best things you can do for us is to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. I'm pretty sure five-star reviews get you an extra crown in heaven. Look, seriously, if you found this episode insightful, spread the word and share it with your friends. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Full Mutuality. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Full Mutuality Podcast. Mm -hmm.